Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. As Australia wrestles with Indigenous reconciliation and recognition, there are some remarkable leaders on the front line of these debates. Today's guest is Mundanara Bales, the co-founder of Black Card. Mundanara, who was recently named Indigenous Businesswoman of the Year, is one of eight girls from a family of activists. In this episode, we discuss her drive to start a business, her leadership challenges as a First Nations woman, letting staff go, and working with friends and family. Mandanara Bales, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. How's your day going? I must say, Helena, I'm actually joining you from the beautiful lands of the Yuggera and Turrbal peoples. I would love to pay my respects to the elders, past and present. This is the lands where my father brought me to since we left Redfern. In the 90s, we came to Brisbane to where my grandmother was living, and today is actually my grandmother's birthday. So acknowledging, you know, Yuggera and Turrbal elders, but also paying respects to my elders. So today's been a bit of a hectic day, running around, back-to-back meetings, getting ready to launch a new side hustle, Blackcast, the podcast network. And um, my aunt ends up in hospital. So I've been to a hospital visit. I've been to a school for a meeting. I've done two meetings online, cancelled two, and I'm now here with you. You are now a leader, a leading voice for First Nations women in this country. And you have been for a long time, but as Australia grapples with increasingly some quite tricky issues, the space has opened up for more and more First Nations leaders to have a say and to be heard. How are you finding that role and that responsibility? I think there's a lot of pressure when you use the word leader. And um, my aunt Lilla, my beautiful aunt who's in hospital right now, she always said that when you put labels on people, you can limit, you can limit people in, in terms of enabling them to reach their full potential. So I don't like to be labeled as a leader, but I do know that I, I come from a family that have been part of the, you know, you could say the political struggle, Aboriginal land rights, the movement. My family have been part of a whole lot of things, activism, since the early 60s. So I've seen leadership demonstrated. So I kind of, I I know that I have leadership qualities, but I don't feel comfortable when someone says, oh, you're a leader. Um, It actually makes me really uncomfortable. 
And it's interesting because growing up in an Aboriginal culture, there's no leaders as such. There's no hierarchy. We're equals. Male and female complemented each other. One would never dominate the other. And children sit beside us as equals. So they're not below you either. So just the term leader, I, I keep telling my son, who is the Indigenous leader, at Coolum State School, the, the, why he's finding it challenging to accept that position. He doesn't mind the position, but he doesn't like the badge. He won't wear it because it says Indigenous leader. It puts you above others in some degree. And if you've grown up in a culture where you're side by side, then it can make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But hey, we live in modern day Australia. It's a, it's a Western society. Australia is a Western society. So trying to navigate both the Aboriginal world and the Western world and have a foot in both, I guess I'm starting to realise that I do have, I have a voice, I've got a platform and I've built a really good business and then networks and friends like people like you. But at the same time, you know, a lot of Australians need to be reminded that I'm just one Aboriginal person and I should not be seen as a representation of my entire race. So we've got to be careful when we say, hey, this is a leader. People think, well, you represent all Black women in this country. And then that could come back and bite me on the backside, as you could imagine. <laughs> and, you know, that you make a point that I, I have made in similar interviews where that word is, is very uncomfortable to First Nations men and women. But we're going to try and navigate our way around that today. Um, and Navigate and I, this for the rest of my life, Helen. I know, I know. Well, that's because you've got stuff to say. And we want to hear what you have to say, right? And and the country needs to hear what you have to say. And I'm trying to think is, you know, what's the word? Like, what word should we use? It's interesting because my Aunt Mary, who's a political scientist and expert in international relations, philosophy and psychology at UQ, Aunt Mary is about to publish a paper on eldership versus leadership, which is interesting as well. I would just say, Aunt Lily and Mary always talk about, like obviously they've had a big influence on my life and my education to help me navigate the world and what I do. I, like role models is even a term that a lot of our people hate using. Oh, they're role models and it's usually footballers. But an exemplar. My Aunt Lilla loves the word exemplar. And I don't really know if I like that word. <laughs> Oh, we just, it doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily. But we could, get, we could get used to it, exemplar. Yeah. You have to remember in Aboriginal culture, you know, you're constantly under surveillance, Helen. This is interesting. You're under surveillance by your whole community because when, when you do become an elder, it's natural progression and it's the community who decides who will become an elder and it's how you've conducted yourself with what you know throughout your whole lifetime. So I think about that every single day with every single conversation or interaction. There's someone in this room that may know me or may hear this and it may get back to my community or my family. So there's a lot of pressure even within that. 
Can we talk about the business? I want to come back to some, you know, some fundamentals of where you've got to today. But tell me what drove you to want to run your own business? I was sick and tired of, you know, whether it's intentional or non-intentional or unconscious bias. You know, I finished school at the age of 16, graduated year 12, and within two months of graduating, I went straight into the Department of Families at the time, Queensland Government. 16, full-time trainee in the government, and straight away I had to try and navigate this really foreign structure. Like, where do I fit? Where's my mob? Are there people in here that look like me? There was nothing, no one. But that was probably part of, you know, my, you know, when you kind of, you're building resilience. And I think that that job kind of gave me the tools and the confidence to stand on my own two feet and to fend for myself in an environment where I was the only Aboriginal person. So um, I had come across a lot of people from all walks of life working in the government. And um, it wasn't the, the, the best experience. You know, you're a trainee, you get given the shit jobs. <laughs> I photocopied for eight hours a day for nearly six months straight. Literally eight hours a day, five days a week for eight months, I photocopied. That shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. literally. What skills was I being taught or what skills did I walk away with? Well, the fact that I had to navigate the Pauline Hanson era. So I'm in the government as a young Aboriginal trainee and in the tea room, People wanted to ask me my opinion on Pauline Hanson. I had never watched the 6 p.m. news at 16. So I realized, right, these people speak a different language. They're interested in different things. But this is, you know, this is the world that we live in. So going into the government, then going into um, other jobs, I worked for Child Support Agency. I looked after Qantas Group's Indigenous Employment Strategy at the age of 19. But that was my maturity. That's what I built. I, I was mature. I was confident. And my mum had passed when I was 18 and my dad gave me four kids. So my older sister went to prison. And even though I've got five older sisters, four of my sisters, Helen, are in and out of prison. Five of my sisters gave birth before their 16th birthday. Five of my sisters are single mothers. So there you go. There's another level of stepping up and taking on not just responsibilities, but obligations that then, I guess, supported me in the workforce. So I was ahead, you know, when did they say you're ahead of your years or whatever? I was beyond, is it beyond my years, ahead of my years? Or Both. I just knew all of my other friends, like still, I'm pretty sure their, their mums are still making their beds and I'm looking after four kids full time and holding down a job. So yeah, trying to manage as a, a carer, auntie, kinship care, whatever that term is, holding down a job and looking after four kids. Work-life balance became really tricky. And just remember, I'm 18. And I didn't want to tell my manager that I am now the sole carer of my sister's four kids because my mother just died and my sister's in prison. So that was at 18, 19, and then I went and done some more work with different organizations and then realized that 
it was really hard to hold down a job when I also, on the weekends, would go out and have fun, let my hair down, drop the four kids off to my dad, go and be an 18-year-old, and then I'd end up in the watch house. (laughs) In Queensland, it's still against the law to be drunk in public, and I didn't know that. So I've got six mugshots, Helen, in the Brisbane Watch House for being drunk in public, not for doing nothing wrong that every other Aussie that goes out on a night on the town with their girlfriends, I didn't do anything different. So I realized at a young age also that I was also a target in terms of racial profiling and to try and hang out at places where maybe police won't be at 5 a.m. So having a criminal history um, was probably, it's a long-winded answer here, but... Yes, it's good though. Having criminal history that I wasn't comfortable with because it wasn't my fault that I had ended up in a watch house for public nuisance, contravene direction, drunken publicness, and the offensive language came. You'd never start with offensive language with coppers. <laughs> As a young black kid, you're taught to be respectful, especially with the police ask you your name and you just, just tell them, don't muck around. And the offensive language always came when they wanted to arrest me for being drunk in public. Anyway, it's cut long story short. I did not like the fact that I had a criminal history that was, you know, a page long. And it wasn't me. And I didn't want people to think that when they were employing me, that they were employing somebody who looked like they had an issue with alcohol when I didn't. And I knew from looking after a lot of Aboriginal people with all of the jobs that I'd done, whether it was Qantas Group or working for Job Network members, I knew that you could not even get a job at Australia Post with a criminal history. Because I wouldn't even interview somebody for a job if they had a criminal history. So here I am now, trying to navigate this world, no children, finished high school, done a traineeship in the government, but I'm unemployable. It damaged my confidence. And then I realized that the only way I'm going to get ahead in life if I just go and apply for jobs in Aboriginal organizations. And that's how I, my, my career took off from building my, my profile and skills in my dad's radio station, Helen. I worked in radio for seven years in an RTO as a media trainer and got my life back on track after my mother passed. And then went back out into the world again and presented myself with other business opportunities and and employment opportunities. So going into business was not actually a thought. It was a job that I was unhappy with. And my aunt said to me, my beautiful aunt in hospital, she said, well, why don't you and I go into business together? And Black Card was born. She had the solution to solve the problem, which was racism and discrimination in the workplace. And mind you, my Aunt Lilla is an associate professor with the School of Psychology at UQ. My Aunt Lilla was the first Aboriginal academic to be employed in 1980 and the first Aboriginal person to serve on their board. So that's who I went into business with. And I haven't looked back. Right. So I'm going to whiz through a couple of things. How big is the business now? There's 11 staff on full-time salaries and 21 on my books. And we deliver training, we do consulting, we're part of the team that's developing the logo and brand strategy for the 2032 Olympics. We've been working with like DHL to develop their reconciliation action plan. And then we've got a tourism arm. So if you ever come to Brisbane, 
Go on TripAdvise, have a look at all of the reviews and come and immerse yourself in Aboriginal culture where we activate public art. I love art. I'm an art collector and I love tourism. So tourism, consulting, training and the podcast Black Magic Woman. So you hired family, built a business with family. Tell me about your learnings for anyone listening to this today. And it's a wide cross-section of young women starting out in their career primarily is the audience. What advice do you have for them in starting working with in any way friends and family? Oh, man, it is. 90% of my staff are family. 90%. Not just one or two. So that's good, right? So it's obviously worked well for you. Is it good? <laughs> well, probably radical listening. honesty. That's it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I hope they're listening. They're a very big audience. <laughs> oh, Helen. Look, I did put a LinkedIn ad out there and went through an Aboriginal recruitment agency pipeline talent to recruit my executive assistant. First time I've had a professional EA. So out of 21 people on my books, there are four non-Indigenous people and um, the rest of them are basically my relations. To be honest with you, you know when you're starting off, for those that are listening, bringing in people that you trust are usually your family and your closest friends. But then again... What's really hard is that in Aboriginal culture, we're equals. It's a lateral system of governance, so there's no hierarchy. So everyone is an equal to you. And even my, my motto at Black Card is we work with people, not for people. So I've got to demonstrate that and not put myself above others. Then I bring in a deadly French business coach, Joris, and Jarris came in and he said, no, no more Murray terms, Aboriginal terms of reference. This is not going to work if you want to grow and build your business. You need to operate on white terms of reference now. Let's change the organizational structure. And I was like, oh, this is going to get up people's noses. We lost two people within the first like two months. And it was, it was like, okay, now I'm the CEO. I'm not your best friend. I can be your best friend after 5 p.m. But from nine to five, I'm the CEO and this is now how I'm going to carry myself and I'm going to back myself. So Helen, this is only the last 12 months I've been on this journey of being the CEO and trying not to put myself above others too much because some of them, like my older sister is my right-hand woman and there's this respect as my older sister, but hold a minute, she's my employee. The lines are way too blurry. So I'm going to guess that in order to navigate that in a way that not only delivers business success and clearly paying the salaries of all the people that work in Black Card is very important, but also navigate it in terms of personal success requires a pretty delicate communications relationship trust arrangement, which I, I can tell you you have in spades. 
is that what you're good at? Is navigating that grey space really well, even though sometimes you might break eggs? Yeah, I'm the queen of relationships. I definitely know that that is my, that's my skill. And it comes within growing up in my culture. It's a diplomatic culture. You have to navigate every conversation in a highly diplomatic way because you're minimizing the potential for conflict. You don't want conflict to arise, so you need to do better at relationships. So that's one part. The other part is bring on an operations manager and there's now a buffer between me. That's the solution that Joris had and it's working. We bring in the ops manager. The operations manager is now above, below me. I do have a new org structure and it is quite, it's not a, it is quite, you know, pyramid hierarchy, but in practice, we're still equals. Okay. So this is a common challenge in a workplace where staff are brought on, they're working with you, they're either in your team or you're the leader. And then you're right, someone gets elevated and someone gets put in between. Like that goes wrong pretty often, Mandanara. How do you how do you deal with the phone call from the person that is beneath the ops guy or woman? and goes, but I just need to talk to you. I don't really like that person and they're in my way. What do you do? It's currently happening. (laughs) (laughs) I had a feeling it might be. (laughs) So what do you do? Do you hang up and go, no, you talk talk to John. I'm not dealing with this. No, I step in again and I try and diplomatically resolve the issue because I'm probably the best person that can do it. Yep. And we get back to everybody... You know, it is, it, it, it's, yeah, it's smooth sailing. It's not always smooth sailing, but nothing's meant to be always smooth sailing, right? I think that's true. I think we're all, I think actually Salman Rushdie, um, Salman Rushdie's given a speech on, on this exact issue. There is no such thing as peace. You know, there's a, and be careful what you wish for, because if it is peaceful, that means there's nothing actually happening. And yes. we need growth and we need experiences and we need, uh, we need the journey. Uh, what are your, strongest skills. You've said you're an incredibly good at relationships. I reckon you're pretty amazing at communication. What else are you really good at? Oh, I think like just being able to negotiate, you know, negotiating the Aboriginal way and the Western way or Aboriginal world and the Western world, like negotiating every day with every kind of meeting that I'm in, I'm trying to figure out this person. And that's why with every single meeting, Every single person I meet, I start off by introducing myself in Aboriginal terms of reference. Because we all know that we're much more than just our job titles. So I'm a mum, I'm a businesswoman, I'm a student at Monash, I'm a podcaster, I love rugby league, I'm a diehard New South Wales, like the bleed, I bleed blue, but live in Queensland. I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter. Like there's so much to me. I love French champagne. I love Louis Vuitton. (laughs) Like, seriously, who doesn't like French champagne? So, do you imagine if we caught up and we just spoke about business, we might have a bit in common with each other. But if we spoke about everything but what we do, you'll find, and it's only a matter of time, that we start to connect and find that common ground or middle ground. So, for me, meeting people and sharing my story in two minutes, it doesn't always have to be two minutes, it could be one minute, it could be 10. 
But I think that's so important. It's something that we don't do enough of is, is we don't invest in relationships to see what is it that we have in common with each other that can help us build and grow a relationship or a friendship that's going to help us if we do go into business or we work with each other. So I think my ability, like I said, I'm bringing the Aboriginal way into a meeting and I'm talking to the Commonwealth Bank board. And I'll say, hey, before we get into business, I know there's an agenda. I'm going to do a quick introduction. Are you not to mention what you do? So in one minute, fingernail sketch of your life, share what you're comfortable sharing. This is who I am. This is where I'm from. Bang. And then everyone does it. Like that's amazing to even have the confidence to walk into a boardroom as a young Aboriginal woman and operate on my terms. Like that in itself is a strength, right? So to negotiate between an Aboriginal way or Aboriginal world of the Western where they're very different. When you think about it, the Western world is highly competitive, highly judgmental and all about the ego. The Western world is a highly individualistic society and the Aboriginal society is a group-based society where you find your individuality amongst a whole group of people. It's non-competitive, non-ego-based and non-judgmental. So I've got to navigate that every single day with every single person that I meet. And I have to, you know, in terms of Aboriginal people that I engage with, especially Aboriginal people in business, I also need to be able to build a relationship and build trust with them so that they don't see me as a threat and they don't see me as their competitor, but their, their biggest supporter. That's hard because the Western world is all about competition. Yeah, I mean, and you're, you're beautifully articulating the, the straddling of the two worlds. Also, when you want to run a successful business and as your, you know, your, your, your business coach said, you know, forget that, that's not working. You're going to have to, you know, and so you are constantly straddling. But I have also personally seen you bring the best of your culture and your traditions and your language and your communication into um, every, set, every setting that you're in and you're incredible at it. What are you rubbish at? What am I rubbish at? Oh, now you're going to make me cry. Do you know what? And for all you amazing women out there that are doing your best to, you know, put food on the table and give your children, you know, a really good future, I feel like, yeah, I neglect my parenting. Like I... I I, and I hate saying this, but again, I'm, I'm pretty honest, Helen, that I'm an absent mum. You know, and my father was an absent dad, but he was the best dad. And he's your role model. Well, I didn't realise. My mum was actually my role model. I didn't realise how much or how incredible my mother was until she passed when I was 18. And I didn't realise how incredible my father was until he passed. Because every government department from local government, state, commonwealth, everybody put out a media release to announce the passing of my father. And that was the first time I got to really understand what my dad was doing whilst my mum was struggling to raise eight kids. And I feel like, I feel like I'm doing the same. And I don't want to do it for much longer. I don't want to be an absent I think, you know, one day my children, I know they will, they'll be, you know, they're benefiting from the work that I do. 
and they'll be appreciative one day. You know, at the same time, my 13-year-old, he still reminds me that I've missed seven birthdays and he'll never forget. And that hurts that I've had to watch him blow out his candles on FaceTime seven times. That my work was too important for me to then knock back a client because it's on my son's birthday. You know, like now I would never do that. Now I'm in a position where I can pick and choose my clients and I can delegate to other trainers in the organization and be present and be at home with my kids. So every woman, as you say, every woman feels this and every working woman feels this. It's not a new struggle. Do you think about it in gender terms ever? Do you think, well, when I was a little girl, I understood that my dad went to work or wasn't at home? No. We had no idea. We had no idea. My dad was just, you know, he had a head office in Montreal in Canada. He was the vice president of the World's Indigenous Media Association in Montreal. Then he was in Mexico. Then he was in Johannesburg. And then he was in Miami. My dad was always gone. I've seen a documentary on him. Where is that documentary? Yes, he's been featured um, as part of SBS NITV Rebel with a Cause. And he's one of the four that they featured. Four First Nations Queenslanders that have shaped Australia. So Neville Bonner, Pat O'Shane, Ujuru Nunaku and Tiger Bales. <sighs> a lot of pressure. So you've got a plan. I do. Yeah, I, I want to be home with my children um, a lot more. I love the, the Sunshine Coast. I live on beautiful Cubby Cubby country. Just moved into a new house in Budrum. And my house in Coolum is on the market for rent. I got my first tenant yesterday. I, I love my life. I love what I've been able to do for my family. And I love the fact that I can help all of my sisters because my mum and dad both passed young because of our life expectancy as Aboriginal people. So I, I love the fact that being in business and creating the success that I've created, that I'm able to share that success with my whole family and community. I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. Your advice to anyone who's having to have difficult conversations with staff? Ring an elder. I've got my elders. I ring my Aunt Lilla and I always say, what would you do? Don't react, respond. Don't react, respond. And you might not have the answer straight away. So come back when you're ready. Don't feel like you have to have the information or answer straight away. You're feeling emotional. You're in the office. You've got someone said something to you that hits you in whatever way. How do you manage it? I've got resilience and neurocalm and some rescue remedy. So I literally do. I'm not joking. I'll pop some neurocalm, have some rescue remedy, go outside for a walk, take a big deep breath, then come back. So self-care to help with my regulating my emotions, looking after my mental health. You make a mistake. You make a call. It's your business. You've got to make a million calls every day, really. Little ones, big ones. You make a mistake. How do you manage that? Oh, my goodness. The first, like I said, like I'm so blessed. I'm in business with my grandmother sister. Every time something happens and I feel, who can I talk to that's going to give me a different perspective on how I need to either respond or bounce back, I get to ring my Aunt Lilla. And really quickly, Sharona Torrens at CBA 
she said to me after Black Card came in and delivered training to like the whole of corporate affairs team, she said, people now say when they're making decisions, Helen, what would Annie Lilla say or what would Annie Lilla think? Your biggest achievement? I think for most women, it's having children. But I would say, other than being a mum, my biggest achievement was buying a house. And not just any house. On the sunny coast. (laughs) I bought the dream house as my first house. I know. We've delayed this entire conversation because the day you bought that house, you said, Helen, is it okay if I celebrate instead of doing the podcast? And I went, sure. I'd be celebrating as well if I just bought a house on the Sunshine Coast. (laughs) Um, And congratulations on the house. Like, I know how much that meant to you. Well, that was the second house, Helen. Oh. Oh, okay, sorry. How many houses do you have? I've only got two, but they're both from the sunny coast. (laughs) Okay, got it. Got it. Okay, got it. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? Yeah, I publicly outed the Premier, um, my beautiful friend Anastasia, publicly outed her in a tweet at an event and my aunt rang me later on. My aunt Lilla rang me and said, have you been on social media and have you said something about the Premier? And I'm like, ooh, aunt Lilla's 85 and she knows what I've just tweeted. Anyhow, (laughs) she said to me, I think you should delete the tweet. And I said, why? And she said, because you don't know what doors are open for you, my girl. I give that advice at least once a week to somebody that I'm either mentoring or that's ringing me for support. I always say to them, you don't know what doors are open for you. Mandanara, what does success look like for you? (sighs) Success for me is um, I'd love to own a house in Noosa. I honestly would. Success for me looks like I just want to see more of my own family and community taking that first step and backing themselves. And there's not enough of us out there that can be their biggest supporters to cheer them on and to pick them up when they fall down or they're lacking self-esteem or confidence or just need somebody to just open the door for them and give them an introduction and let them work their magic. I know more of our people would be able to, you know, be successful and run businesses and be entrepreneurs. But self-belief is number one, and then other people believing in you. So how do we kind of, for me, how do I bring my whole community with me? Because if I'm the only one that benefits from my success to me, then that's not success. I want my whole community to be able to come with me. And my final question is, how can we help? If there's one thing that the listeners of this podcast can do to help, what is it? Well, I'm a, you know, I hate saying this, but I'm an Indigenous woman in business. So people say, hey, you're an Indigenous businesswoman. Go on back Indigenous businesses. There's not enough out there that are in business and we are 100 times more likely to employ an Indigenous person. So we're able to actually close the gap when it comes to Indigenous unemployment rates. So back Indigenous businesses, I've got a not-for-profit that we're going to launch in January called Deadly Futures. It's an Indigenous corporation. It's got DGL status and it's around supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with education, training and employment, which will lead, hopefully, to lower suicide rates in this country. Because Aboriginal youth are the highest than anywhere else in the world to die by suicide. So I'm really committed to Deadly Futures. 
And everything that I do at Black Card feeds into Deadly Futures. So, you know, come support us. Get on our on our LinkedIn pages and follow us or Instagram, wherever you connect with people on social media. And, um, you know, just reach out and say, hey, can we have a, a coffee? Because in that exchange, you don't know what you're going to get out of it and there shouldn't be any real agenda except for building a relationship. So I'm literally always saying to people in every Black Card workshop that I deliver, get on LinkedIn, connect with me, and if we can have a coffee, then I'm up for it. Mandanara Bales, you're an inspiration. Um, You're a great friend of FW's. It's a privilege to be able to say I even know you, let alone have a coffee with you. Thank you for your time today. You will own that house in Noosa, but I will come and visit you before you get the house in Noosa and come and see you on the Sunshine Coast. And may Aunt Leela have a speedy recovery. Uh, thank you, Helen. Can I do a really quick shout out to my beautiful cousin, Maddie? Maddie oh, Howard. Yes, go for it. My beautiful cousin living in London that's supporting me with Black Magic Woman. So when you see my post on LinkedIn, that's Maddie doing the writing for me. Um, but Jamila Rizvi was the one that said, do you know your cousin is really intelligent? I'm like, really? <laughs> so Jamila and Maddie, you know, I just want to say a big thank you for actually connecting me to you, Helen. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to be on your amazing podcast and to share my journey with you and all of your listeners. I appreciate your friendship much more than you know. Thank you. Mwah. Go back to Aunt Leela. Go and get your life in order. Sorry to make you cry. I don't think it would have been really if I didn't cry. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell. And audio imaging by Nat Marshall. <laughs>